Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. The clocks have changed, the days are getting longer, and all around us the verges, trees, parks and gardens are showing signs of spring. From bright new leaves to birdsong in the hedges and signs of early pollinators on the emerging blossom, we could be forgiven for thinking that nature seems to be thriving and our biodiversity is not under threat. But how wrong we are. In this new PlanetPod series, we'll be looking at biodiversity, habitat loss and threats to wildlife, both here in the UK and further afield. I'm Amanda Carpenter, and who better to start us off than friend of the podcast, Professor Andy Purvis, biodiversity researcher at the Natural History Museum and Imperial College London. And later, I will be out and about at RSPB Minsmere, tracking what is happening to our birds and wildlife on the ground and in the air. Hello, Andy, and welcome back to Planet Pod. Hi, Amanda. Great to be back. Thanks so much for joining us. And I wonder, um, many listeners will have heard our conversation at COP26 back in November, which seems a long time ago now. Um, We talked about biodiversity and particularly your State of Nature report. But for those who didn't, could you maybe help us by just explaining what do we mean when we talk about biodiversity? I mean, I've just been whittering on about birds and bees, but it's way more than that, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Biodiversity is not just the groups that you recognise and see around you that we're used to thinking of like birds and butterflies. It's all of living nature in all its diverse forms from trees that can live for a millennium down to bacteria that can divide within hours of forming. So from microscopic to things that have lifespans that we can't really contemplate, All of that makes up biodiversity, the whole tapestry of life, the fabric of life, biodiversity is often called. And that's quite a good metaphor because it is our safety net, as well as being important in its own right and for its own sake. Biodiversity is what starts our supply chains. Everything we eat comes from ecosystems and they also help regulate the climate, help provide fresh water help provide the so-called underpinning services that allow ecosystems to keep functioning and give us what we need, like fertile soil. They do all of these things, and we tend not to notice them, and we tend to think of biodiversity about threatened species far away that we'll probably never see. But all of it's biodiversity, and it's in trouble pretty much everywhere. And that's probably why I suppose that a lot of the world's attention and certainly government's attention has been looking at trying to create a proper biodiversity framework and set some targets for all of us as nations to achieve around solving that biodiversity crisis, which goes hand in hand with solving the climate crisis, doesn't it? So when you say it's, you know, Nepal a state, give us some examples. I mean, what's happening here in the UK, for example? So in the UK, biodiversity is relatively stable, relatively. We've got some species that I know from my childhood used to be common and are now very rare, like hedgehogs, for instance, have become very much rarer. But it's relatively stable, but stable in a very degraded state compared with natural ecosystems. Elsewhere in the world, in much of the developing world, biodiversity is less stable, it's declining much more rapidly, but is still in much better shape than it is here. And overall, we now have around a million species of animal and plant 
that have threatened with extinction. And extinction rates are already at least tens to hundreds, probably thousands of times what would be an average natural rate, but for human interventions. That's quite a scary prospect, isn't it? And that we might be on the edge of this great mass extinction. And I suppose we know about some, I mean, you've mentioned the hedgehog, and we can probably point to some of the bird species and some of the mammal species that were more familiar to us. But but we're talking about extinction right through the system, aren't we? So things which are part of that building block, as you've said, a building block of life. So extinctions of plants and microorganisms and all of these things, and possibly even extinction of things that we don't even know that we've got yet in terms of some of those species that have yet to be discovered in parts of the developing world and parts of the global south. Yes, that's right. So we've already described about 2 million animal and plant species, which sounds great, but there's probably about four times that many, could even be more than that. And I keep saying animal and plants because we really don't have a handle on how much microbial diversity there could be. There could be billions of species, but we simply don't know. And we have no idea what proportion of those might be threatened. But it looks to be round about a quarter of animal and plant species, except for insects, where the proportion might be a bit lower, but it is unlikely to be below 10%. And you end up with a million species at risk of extinction, which is, yeah, it is kind of terrifying. So what is happening about it? I mean, what what is happening in terms of some of the national government policies and the commitments to try and halt, if anything is happening, to try and halt the extinction rate? What are some of the things that people are talking about doing? There's a range of different policy approaches that could potentially help make a big difference in terms of preventing extinctions, preventing further biodiversity loss. One big push is 30 by 30, the idea of expanding the amount of land and ocean that is protected against, uh, if you like, overuse or misuse to 30% over the rest of this decade. And that could be fantastic if it's the right 30%, if it's the most important 30% where otherwise threats would intensify or are already acute, then that could be fantastic. But equally, if you put that 30% somewhere that is not under any immediate danger whatsoever, then you're not necessarily making any difference by doing it. So we've got to be careful not to confuse targets and the headline statements in those targets for achievements. And history shows us just how careful we have to be. So the Convention on Biological Diversity first set a global target for biodiversity in 2002, which was that by 2010, there would be a significant reduction in the rate of biodiversity loss. We missed that target. In 2010, we set 20 targets for the following decade, the so-called Aichi targets, And we missed all 20 of them. Now, had we achieved either the first target, the 2010 target, or a decent number of the 2020 targets, we wouldn't be needing to have this kind of conversation. And we would be on a much more sustainable trajectory than the one we're on. But actually, the history of targets and statements about policies that will achieve a safe future, get us to the future safely. It's not a great history. So we've got to be really careful. 30 by 30 sounds great. It's got to be the right 30. So that 
prompts two questions in my head. One is, why do we miss the targets? And the second is, how are we going to ensure that we divide up that 30 by 30 responsibility equally across the areas where it's needed? Because so often when we have these conversations about global climate change and global action, there's a disproportionate focus on parts of the world that are least able to take action, but are most in need. And then in the end, it always comes down to money. So how do we miss the targets so spectacularly? I mean, what did we all do wrong? Well, I think there's there's a few things. There are, there are some things around our ability to monitor what was actually happening that meant we didn't have any opportunity for a sort of sat-nav to get us to where we wanted to go. So I'm a biodiversity modeler. And the reason really that I build models of how biodiversity responds to human impacts is to be able to make projections of how biodiversity might change under different alternative futures. And the idea is that if you make those projections, you can choose to take actions that according to the model projections will get you to where you need to go. And then once you're doing that, you monitor as well to check you're on the right track. And together, that gives you a sat-nav that enables you to make course corrections if the models turn out to have been unduly pessimistic or optimistic, uh, or the actions haven't worked in some way. So that's one thing, whereas most of the longer-standing biodiversity indicators tell you what has been happening, but can't be used to tell you what will happen in the future under these alternative scenarios. So that's like trying to navigate by looking out of the rear window of your car. You know, it's just, you can't safely get to where you're going reliably. Uh, and also, those indicators tend to take quite a long time to compile. So this is particularly true with data on species extinctions, which can take a decade to be noticed because something goes from being extremely rare to not there at all. Well, you know, that's, that's quite a fine distinction to have to make. So it, it's hard to demonstrate an extinction, and usually there's therefore a great big reporting lag. So now you're, nav you're trying to navigate to where you're going by looking out of the rear window every half an hour. <laughs> so you're, you're really not going to get that kind of rapid fire action. So part of it, I think, is, is on the scientific community through not being able to give the, the kind of command and control information, if you like. But that really isn't the problem. The problem really is that there hasn't been the will. Because if there was the will, then those things would have happened. They would have been imperatives. They Do wouldn't you... have been left to academics. <laughs> they, they would have been taken care of. They would have been taken care of. Well, at least having you in the driving seat would be, you know, would be a better place to, for us to be. Do you feel that the will has shifted? You know, we've got COP15 coming up at some point, which is the biodiversity COP. We've, we've had some recent meetings in Geneva where a certain amount of progress has happened, though the RSPB and others would say not enough and it's glacial. Do you feel that will has shifted slightly as a result of a greater awareness of the impact of climate change and the importance of the nature crisis in solving that alongside solving the climate crisis? I'm certainly very much more optimistic than I was three or four years ago, uh, when <laughs> it was really quite hard getting through the working day without feeling pretty depressed at what, what some of the models were, were showing and what some of the other data syntheses were showing compared with what people were talking about as potential solutions. I think there is very much greater awareness in governments, 
yes, but particularly in businesses and in broader society. And those are two sets of people that have very much more powerful influence on governments than scientists do. So there are now a lot of uh, businesses that are pushing for stronger regulation of environment and of biodiversity. That makes it easier for governments to act. And we also have uh, many more pressure groups and concerned individuals who are agitating and writing to MPs and making their views very clear in a range of different fora that this is something that needs to be taken seriously and that action can't wait for everything else to be fixed first. And on that optimistic note, I've come out to RSPB Minsmere to um, help celebrate a very special anniversary. It's actually the 75th birthday of RSPB Minsmere this week. And I'm joined by Ian Barthorpe, who's um, Visitor Experience Officer. And Ian, you haven't been here 75 years, but you have been here a while, haven't you? I have. I've been here for nearly 20 years, but uh, uh, the reserve has uh, just developed into such an amazing place to come and, and, and watch wildlife, uh, discover wildlife for yourself, learn about the uh, the work um, that the RSPB does. Uh, and we've we've been able to celebrate so many conservation successes here over the years as well. Why do you think it's so special? Because it's home to something like 6,000 different species, isn't it? What is it about this particular bit of landscape that attracts those species here? One of the things we've got at Minsmere is, is, is its size. Uh, we're one of, the, one of the largest nature reserves in England um, with a big variety of habitats. So we've got all the different habitats you'll find in lowland England, um, almost all found here at Minsmere. Uh, and all of that combined with the fact that we're, we're on the coast, um, so we're, we, we, we're on a, a migration hotspot for a lot of species. We've been managing the reserve for 75 years, so we've had a long history of recording and, and of visitors coming. Um, and we've we, we've got so many special species that have been found here over the years that that's that obviously draws more people to come and uh, and look for some of our uh, some of our key species and but birds like the bittern uh, and the avocet and marsh harry have almost become synonymous with Minsmere over the years. And and tell us a little bit about the habitat itself. So we're on the coast, but for the moment we've, we've, we're inland a little bit because obviously bit windy out there. Um, so tell us a little bit about what we've got around here and what sorts of species would come to these kinds of these kinds of habitats we're standing in. Yeah, so uh, where we're stood at the moment, we're just overlooking a, a low sandy cliff uh, with San Martins nesting uh, in there and various species of insects burrowing into the banks there. Um, we've got a lovely pond behind us, which is uh, going to be fantastic in a few weeks' time for the dragonflies and we're going to see water vole or water shrew down there as well. Uh, We've got a lovely area of scrub around us, uh, full of warblers, uh, nightingales just uh, in other scrubby areas on the reserve. Um, and then you can move out onto the, uh, the wetlands and, and enjoy uh, the area that we call the scrape, which is a man-made shallow lagoon with islands uh, where you find nesting avocets, gulls, terns uh, at this time of year, and big flocks of ducks in the winter uh, and, and migrant wading birds in spring and autumn. Uh, You've got the sand dunes and uh, the, the, the species associated with that. And then you've got some of the largest freshwater reed beds in the country, home to birds like bitterns, uh, and marsh harriers and bearded tits and species like otter and water vole um, in there as well. And some of the lesser known parts of the reserve, we've got uh, large areas of deciduous woodland, um, some conifer plantation, 
um, and fantastic areas of Sandlings Heath, a uh, mix of heather heathland and uh, short acid grassland, which are home to species like Dartford warbler, stone curlew, woodlark, nightjar, uh, and again, various insects and, and reptiles up there as well. This episode of Planet Pod is supported by leading international law firm, Evershed Sutherland. That's an incredible list, I and mean, it's a little bit like being inside the bird spotter's handbook. Um, tell me about the sandlings, because they are a very special sort of um, habitat, aren't they? Quite rare and incredibly fragile. Yeah, so the sandlings heath, it's a unique type of heathland. Um, historically, it occurred on large parts of the coast between Lowestoft and Ipswich. Uh, small pockets remain, um, but in recent years, organisations like the RSPB uh, have, have helped to re- recreate um, some of that uh, uh, fragile habitat um, and restore areas that had been turned over to agriculture or to forestry back to um, the, uh, the Sandlings Heath. And it, it's it's called Sandlings because it's on this very dry, sandy soils um, that we find on the Suffolk coast. Uh, and some of it's heather heathland, um, brilliant for things like Dartford warblers. Um, and some of it is very short, rabbit grazed, acid grassland. And that's the areas that birds like uh, the stone curly and, and the woodlark favour. So we've got species here in Suffolk that we don't have in any other part of the UK. Is that right? Because of the type of habitat? Uh, we've got species here in Suffolk that uh, um, are, are in, in some of their strongholds, but may occur in similar habitats elsewhere. Um, uh, there are one or two that really are you know, have become specialities here. So there is an insect called an antlion. It's a fascinating insect. It's nocturnal, so we very rarely see the insects themselves, but the larva um, give themselves away because they burrow um, into soft sand and create a little conical pit. They were first discovered nesting uh, in uh, the UK uh, right alongside our visitor centre here in 1996. Um, and although they have started to spread into coastal areas of Norfolk, they're, they're very much a, a Suffolk coast stronghold uh, still. And, and worryingly, the sandlings and actually the reserve itself are under threat, aren't they? They're under threat from 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 two big energy projects. One, Sizewell C, which is a well, Sizewell C and D, which is a big nuclear power project, literally just up the coast, and also for bringing onshore some offshore wind turbine cables. So, so how worried are you at the RSPB about those threats, and how, what kind of damage will it do to to this very special place? So here at Minsmere, we're concerned about the potential impacts of Sizewell C uh, on the hydrology of the site, the ability for us to be able to manage the water levels and keep uh, um, the, the reed beds and the, and the scrape in, in, in tip-top condition for wildlife. Uh, and we're also impact, uh, concerned about the impact of coastal uh, processes uh, from the from the development. Um, and a 10-year build process of 24 hours of noise, light and dust pollution is, is, is another big concern uh, for us. Um, so we've uh, uh, been uh, you know, putting all of those uh, cases to, uh, uh, to, to the planners and we we're waiting to see what the planning inspectorate's decision is going to be. Yeah, and you have a kind of campaign running, don't you? The Love Minsmere campaign to try and encourage people, inform people, but encourage people to support you. Uh, so we were we, we ran a campaign. We got 104,000 people signed uh, our petition. Um, we're now awaiting to see what the, the planning inspectorate's uh, decision will be um, later this spring. Um, and that will inform our, the next stages of, our, uh, uh, of any campaigning that's required. And this is important because we've been talking Earlier in the program, we were talking to, to, to Andy about biodiversity loss and habitat loss. And we are a very depleted country in terms of our species and, our, and the richness of our nature. 
what sorts of changes have you seen over the time that you've been here in terms of changes to, to biodiversity makeup? Yeah, we're, we're in the middle of a, 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 a nature and climate emergency, um, and uh, it, it's going to have it's already having a big impact on, on lots and lots of species. Yeah, we've we've lost some of our um, once common species of uh, of woodland and farmland, not just from here at Minsmere, but from large parts of the UK. So, you know, species like uh, um, grey partridge and corn bunting, uh, for example, in, in farmland and, and lesser spotted woodpecker or willow tit in woodland are, are now very scarce birds in the UK and, and, and long gone from, uh, from Minsmere. Um, and a variety of factors have affected those. Um, Birds closer to home, like you know, house sparrows, you know, you'll have heard lots of uh, talk about uh, um, the declines of those. So here at Minsmere, we've uh, yeah, we've had many conservation success stories. Uh, we've seen the bitterns bounce back from uh, the verge of extinction in the UK, marsh harriers likewise, um, and because we're able to do focused conservation work on, on, on special habitats, we've seen stone curlews return and Dartford warblers return from long years of absence. And so... Uh, and we, we're now starting to see birds like uh, yeah, Chetty's warblers and Mediterranean gulls and, and little little egrets occurring in bigger and bigger numbers, and more and more species that previously had a Mediterranean uh, distribution colonising not just Minsmere but other parts of the UK uh, as a result of our milder climate. Yeah, so the, I mean they, they they say that, don't they? It's it, it's a signal when those Mediterranean birds come here. It's a signal that the climate's changing, the climate's warming, and and it's. And is that warming having an effect on some of our native species or is it changing the species makeup that we'll see? It absolutely changes the makeup of species we see. And yeah, there, there's a lot of studies that show that, uh, that wildlife is moving north and northwest um, with the impacts of climate change. Mobile species like birds are able to do that. Plants, that's much, much more difficult. Um, and and the, 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 the climate space that is available for them um, can, can be uh, very restricted. And of course, even for some of our birds, it can be a, a big uh, problem, especially for those that live on the tops of uh, the, the Scottish mountains. Uh, they haven't got anywhere else to go um, if the climate warms. Um, and so we will lose uh, species like dotterel and, and ptarmigan from the UK um, as a result of warming climates. And and. Why does that richness of species matter so much? Why does having this diverse bird, I mean, apart from the fact they are beautiful to look at and it's wonderful when you're out here and you can see them and you can hear them, why does it matter to have that diversity, that biodiversity in terms of species? Biodiversity is all so interconnected to each other. Um, if we lose the insects, we lose the birds that feed on them. If we lose the insects, we're losing our pollinators. We're therefore not just losing our plants, but we're losing our crops and our ability to grow food. Uh, and they are all totally in interconnected. You, uh, uh, most of nature has evolved to live with, with those interconnections and you only need to break one element of that chain and the whole can very quickly collapse. And apart from anything else, just the beauty of nature, the relaxing power of being out in nature, it is, it is a proven uh, yeah, cure to just spend time out in nature. It's one of the best ways to just get out and you know, and connect with the world and, and, and feel relaxed. And, and uh, we can't lose that. It is incredibly important and incredibly precious. What about people who, who've um, perhaps got a small patch of land or a garden or even, you know, maybe living in a, in a, in a, in a flat in the street? What can, what can we do to try and help that biodiversity and regain biodiversity? What sort of actions can people take? One of the most important actions people can take is, is to support 
uh, conservation organisations like the RSPB by becoming members. Uh, well, you would say that. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, but yeah, that allows us to not just manage our um, reserves, but also to ensure that we're able to campaign to get the right policies in place. Um, on a on a much smaller scale, uh, yeah, even if you only have a, a little window box, uh, growing native species of, of wildflowers um, uh, can can really benefit pollinators. Um, yeah, supporting um, some of the wider campaigns that uh, organisations get involved with, um, uh, yeah, it can, it's something that can often be done from home as well. Um, yeah. I've turned my front garden, front lawn over into a flower meadow and it's just amazing in just a couple of years how many more insects you can see out there when you spend a bit of time just uh, crawling around on the floor listening to them. And of course, if you're rewilding your front garden, you don't have to mow it. So think of all the time saved to spe that you then spend crawling around listening to the insects. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, um, what is your, I mean, it probably isn't possible for you to say this, but what's your kind of favourite Minsmere moment or, or the, the most special thing when you when you think about Minsmere what is it that you know really makes your heart sing it is one of those it's a, a really difficult question one of the things that really makes my day is seeing and hearing other people's visitors stories about their excitement yeah the amount of people who come back and say, I've just seen a bittern <laughs> yeah we've had people in floods of tears over seeing their first bittern hugging the volunteer that has just found them their first bittern um, those are the stories that, you know, that, that really make our day. Um, uh, for me, there are so many species of wildlife I've seen here. Um, yeah, I will never tire of sitting in, in a hide uh, listening to uh, a booming bittern um, or watching um, avocets sifting uh, through, the, uh, through the shallows. Um, but I've also seen a phenomenal variety of, uh, yeah, totally unexpected species uh, here. Um, yeah, uh, perhaps the most unexpected of all, we're standing um, only about 50 metres from where we are now, um, which is a quarter of a mile inland, um, and watching a, a humpback whale breaching offshore. Um, I, didn't, yeah, I really didn't expect to see, uh, to, to see that at Minsmere. Um, but yeah, we've, had, we've had incredibly rare birds, um, and um, yeah, we've had uh, many, many common species. And yeah, the best wildlife spectacle at Minsmere, probably standing underneath 50,000 starlings as they sw swirl into roost in the evening. Um, that, that always takes some beating. Yeah, there's nothing quite like a Suffolk murmuration, is there? <laughs> no, um, I, if, it, if it was predictable enough that it was here every night through the winter, we would have crowds of people coming to watch them. Unfortunately, they're often only with us for a few weeks at a time. So if you hear that the starlings are with us, you need to come and, uh, and, and, and spot them. But it's, uh, it's well worth wrapping up warm and, and getting out there. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to see one of those standing on the beach looking back at Minsmere. And it was a spectacular sight. In, your enthusiasm and your passion just come across in everything you say. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Planet Pod and, and sending a very clear message to all of us that that we can do something about this. We can take action. We can do something to help preserve wildlife and nature, even if we only have a small plot or a window box. And obviously, the more actions we take to prevent climate change, the more we do to reduce the warming climate, the better it's going to be for all of our species. And on that note, we'll pass back to the studio. Thank you for your time. Oh, what's that? We can hear. That was, a, that was Professor Yaffle from Bagpuss. That was a green woodpecker. A green woodpecker. I'm going to go hunt for a bit. And I think it's probably the wrong time of year, isn't it, really? They're booming at the moment, so you right. may be lucky. Okay. Thanks so much for your time, Ian. Great to meet you.
Thank you. As you can probably tell, I loved my walk around RSPB Minsmere in Suffolk. What a magical place. While they're doing great conservation work, it really is under threat. So I would call on all our listeners to write to the Secretary of State to say to stop the madness that is Sizewell Sea. This is not clean or green energy and we risk destroying a magical part of our world. And now back to our interview with Professor Andy Purvis of the Natural History Museum. I asked Andy what he would call upon the UK government to do in the run-up to COP15. What are the key things we should be clamouring for? The thing that for me would have the biggest kind of strategic impact if the government would do it, if all governments would do it, is to stop listening to organisations that lobby them in bad faith. So some kind of three strikes and you're out system. We've seen with climate scepticism, and I'm I'm using virtual quotes around scepticism because so many of the organisations that have lobbied against climate action are not sceptical of the science at all. They just feel confident that they as individuals or organisations will be rich enough to buy themselves out of the worst consequences that they're happy to inflict on the rest of the world. I think governments should stop listening to organisations with that kind of track record or certainly put them on a final notice that if it appears with the biodiversity crisis that organisations like that are acting in bad faith, they will no longer have the ear of government. The difficulty is that the scale of the challenge is such that we need fairly radical re-engineering of how global economy works and how individuals play their role within it. And so rich and powerful organisations are inclined to... Uh, quite like the status quo, (laughs) and they're not necessarily going to want change, even though in that change is going to come loads and loads of opportunities. You know, well-run businesses will have lots of opportunities if there's a big change in in how economies are structured. So I'd love to see some kind of shutting the door on bad faith lobbyists um, who claim to have public interest at heart, but do not. In terms of more concrete and more short-term things, for me, the UK is in an unusual position. We're at sort of one end of the spectrum in terms of our history with natural resources in that we kind of started the Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution provided all manner of benefits to all manner of people, don't get me wrong. And the benefits from our our high-tech, high-consuming way of life that's developed in consequence should not be underestimated. We live longer than ever before, as well as there being more of us, in greater average wealth and comfort than ever before, with a lower burden of disease. And even though understandable if this doesn't seem true at the moment, with less chance of dying in a war, than basically any time in recorded history. All of those are amazing. But the Industrial Revolution also led to mass trashing of natural ecosystems and cashing in nature for profit. And that's why the UK is at such a a low base position now. That's quite unusual. It will be relatively easy for the UK to improve our biodiversity within the UK. All you would have to do is stop subsidising agriculture. And then less of the land would be farmed, 
more of it would revert to semi-natural and then natural forest. Great. Biodiversity within the UK would improve, but we would be importing more of our food from overseas, often from places that have much more irreplaceable, unique, truly amazing biodiversity than we do. And so the global consequence of improving local biodiversity would likely be negative. So I would want all governments to have a view on the big global picture. This is a global problem. It's going to need a joined up global solution, which isn't necessarily going to mean the same kind of targets for all countries. What I would love to see us do is improve nature here and also reduce our overseas impact on nature. And obviously, if all countries did that year on year, things would improve. That would be amazing. Not only driving the car in a a most efficient and environmentally friendly way, you're also navigating us through incredibly complicated territory, to use your metaphor of earlier. So I think you're looking forward rather than backwards. Andy, that's just been so fascinating and helpful. And you're absolutely right. We're in this together. This is a global problem that needs a global solution. And we need our country to step up and and work with others to try and find that solution. So, So thank you for that. Thank you for navigating us through both the complex national, international, global picture, but also giving us some advice about things we can do more locally and closer to home. Been absolutely fascinating. And as and when COP ever happens, <laughs> wherever it happens to be, I know it's scheduled for China, but we'll wait and see. We might ask you to come back and tell us how it went to see if there's something we can pick over from the from the discussions and this, hopefully the solutions that come out of the conference. Yeah, I'd love to. And all of the people who are negotiating COP, I just wish them the very best of luck. It's a real challenge and we all need it to go really well. We do. We do. Nature and the world need us. Andy, thank you for your time. It's been fantastic to talk to you and thanks for joining us. Great. Cheers. Bye. That's all from Planet Pod this time. My thanks to our guests, Professor Andy Purvis of the Natural History Museum and Ian Barthorpe, Visitor Experience Officer at RSPB Minsmere. Thanks too to our producer, Beth, and our executive producer, Jim, and to you for listening. If you've enjoyed what you listen to, please get in touch. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We love hearing from you. Thanks for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you, so please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media.